You're listening to Why Try, the podcast. One of the main reasons to have a venture fund or an angel investor with expertise is because they've been there before, they've done it, they can help you think through issues and help you get out of your own head a little bit. My guest this week is Julianne Brands, who heads up research and analysis at the Oregon Angel Fund. We discuss the workings of the fund, key traits they look for in founders and companies, and more. I hope you'll enjoy our conversation as much as I did. So just kind of a high-level question. Do you mind telling me a little bit about Oregon Angel Fund, how it's organized, uh, and kind of where companies are in their development when they come to look for investors? Of course. Um, The Oregon Angel Fund is the largest and most active venture capital fund based here in Oregon. We are a collaborative venture capital fund, so it's a different model than a lot of other, most other venture capital funds you'll see. Um, And the reason we're different is because we take this collaborative approach to using the expertise of our individual investors in the fund who are our angel investors. Uh, We use their expertise to help us make investment decisions and also mentor the companies that we're working with. So that's different because we have compiled Oregon's business and technology leaders, we think, into a a group and we can leverage all of their expertise for the benefit of companies in our pipeline and companies in our portfolio. So we get investors who are the exact right fit and, you know, have experienced the same industry problems um, as the companies that are in our portfolio. And that helps us because we only invest in Oregon, hence the name Oregon and the Oregon Angel Fund. And so when we look at startups in Oregon and Southwest Washington, that means we're investing across every business model, market, industry, technology. And so it's hard for five people on our management team like me to have that expertise. So um, that's a huge benefit of our model is that we can use the expertise of our investors for um, for those companies. Companies are usually at the product market fit stage when they come to us. We'll invest anywhere from $500,000 to $2 million in a company. So that usually looks like they know there's an evidence of a pain point in the market and they know that their product is, they think their product is going to solve that problem. But our capital usually is learning capital to help them understand how do I go from selling one of whatever widget I'm selling in the market to selling a hundred of those widgets in their market. Um, So our learning capital really helps them get to the stage of after maybe a few friends and family invest, but before maybe a huge venture fund is going to come in and um, help them spend a lot of money to scale or kind of in that nailing it stage before they go and scale it stage. Okay, interesting. You brought up like a few things. So one was like, how many people are involved as... um would advisors be the right word or yeah. uh, like experts? We, yeah, we call them our um, investors. Technically, they're called um, limited partners would be the vernacular in venture, but we don't we don't treat them as limited. They're we treat them as general. Limited, exactly. Yeah, as general partners. They can be as active as they want to. Um, and so there are about 180 or so investors in our fund. Um, about half of the capital comes from individual investors who are we're all pooling our money at the beginning of the year. We have an annual fund, which is, again, different. Um, and we take that capital, invest it all in one year. 
The other half of the capital in that same fund comes from institutional investors, and those institutional investors write larger tech checks by and large, and they commit capital to us over multiple years um, to help give us a solid foundation and really increase our impact. Um, there is a limit to the number of investors you can have in a venture capital fund. So um, those larger institutions who are pension funds, um, foundations, the state of Oregon, they can really help us scale the impact we're having um, and invest in more company and more startups. Oh, I, well, you touched on a little bit. It's like the um, like what companies use the money for. Uh-huh. So like, um, why do companies need need funding at that stage? And yeah. then, kind of, what does that money typically go to uh-huh. um, for and and for angel investors? And then, in case I forget again, uh, like how big are those checks that you write, like per sure. individual company? Oh, good question. Um, so the stage at which we invest, the question about kind of what are companies using the money for? You know, as I mentioned, it is this learning capital. Um, what does that look like? Yeah. So first, I should say that venture capital isn't for every company. I think the most recent data I've seen of all small businesses that are of all businesses or startups that are founded, only two percent raise venture capital, and that's because. Um, And that's because there's really a small subset of companies that really fit the venture capital model. And so that looks like, well, what it's a company that's going to kind of increase by 10x in value in under 10 years. So that's a very different growth trajectory than other, you know, than a lot of companies. Um, so that being said, when companies look to outside investors for money, you know, first we say, talk to your customers. They should give you money first, right, as a customer. Second, we say, talk to your partners. They're vested and they have a vested interest in you succeeding. And third, if you see an inflection point in the business, and we see it with a lot of different business models where you need to invest a lot up front to help grow the company really rapidly over time, you know, and you're in a large and growing market with a rock star team, you know, those are some of the ingredients that make for a successful venture investment. So usually when our companies are um, raising money, they're at an inflection point. They know they have customers that are really excited about their product. They don't quite know what the product could or should look like, but they really want to test with their customers, not only is this product meeting your needs and solving your problems, but usually, and more importantly, um, at the stage that we invest at least, is what's the conversation I need to have with you to get you to actually buy my product? So what does that sales conversation look like? What are the best channels it takes for me to reach my customer? Do I need to spend money in those channels, whether it be on social media, whether it be in B2B marketing, or whether it be through events and conferences and webinars? You know, what is the most effective channel for me to reach my customer? And once I get there, what are the conversations I need to have with them to help them swipe their credit card or pay for my product. So that's kind of the learnings really around what does the product actually need to look like and how do I go about getting that product into my customers' hands? Yeah, how do, how do people figure that out? Yeah, great question. It's um, pr- probably about as broad of a question as you'll yeah, get. But. Yeah, so um, let's take let's take an example maybe that, of a that company would be great. Yeah. to, to, to yeah. look at this. So we invest in everything from 
we have a CPG food company called Farmhouse Culture in the portfolio, all the way to an autonomous vehicle startup called Polysync in the portfolio. So how they reach and talk to their customers are going to be really different. But if we take, we see a lot of um, enterprise software companies. So uh, companies that are selling into businesses. Um, and so a few of the strategies they might deploy is first, they build a product that's We'll call it a minimum viable product. So it's kind of like the worst product you can get into a customer's hands, but it's going to be able to solve their problem in some way. So you get a few beta customers. You talk to people that you know have your problem and you say, hey, I have this product. I think it's going to solve your problem. I probably know you because we've worked together before in a similar capacity or I've worked with your company. Maybe I worked for your company. Um, help me understand how and why this fits your problem. And I'll work with you, you know, every day talking to you about what you like, what you don't like, how it's solving your needs. There are a lot of software programs you can buy that help you watch your customer in your product so you can understand that. And then once you start to understand how customers are using the product, why they're using it, what features they need to make that product important, your engineering team can start to build that. Um, and as you start to take that product and get it better, you can go start to say, okay, we need to find a few more customers. What's the best way to do that? Up front, it's usually referrals, hopefully, from other customers. Um, that's a great sign that your product works if people want to recommend it They're to other people. Like evangelizing for you. Yeah. Totally. And it's there's a whole nomenclature around it where you can talk about virality of products or the network effect of a product. Um, but at the very least, customers are trying or companies are trying to get a sense of the value that that product is providing. And um, a net promoter score is something we can talk about more. But a lot of companies use that as an indicator of the question is, how likely are you to recommend this to a friend? And so that is a really good indicator of, is somebody going to recommend this to somebody else? So it's a lot of early on just customer conversations. Um, and then it's a lot of testing the channels that it takes to talk to those customers. So sure, referrals, but maybe if you're a B2B software company, you work with a partner organization, say another software company that has the same, that is complementary to your product and has the same um, customer base and you host a webinar together or you co-market together at a conference. Um, and then you start to track and measure, okay, how many customers did we get from the webinar? How many customers did we get from the conference? Uh, if we start paying for Google AdWords, how many customers come to the top of the funnel through Google AdWords and how long does it take? How fast do they get there and how much will they spend if we convert them as customers? Um, so those are some of the key learning examples for, say, an enterprise software company that they're going through to figure out um, to, to figure out what that process looks like. And there's a ton of CEOs will take enterprise software CEOs that you could talk to about their journey of how they activated customers and learned about their customer. I'd be happy to recommend you to folks. Yeah, that, that'd be that'd be great. Thank cool. you. Yeah, it kind of reminds me of uh, like a documentary about sharks where they like they like, like bump things with their nose before they decide if they want to like bite it. And they just yeah. kind of go around like, oh, is that food? Yeah. Is that food? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And there's all these playbooks you can read about different markets and different sales channels that are helpful. But the reality is that every business is different. So you need to test hypotheses. So just try it. Yeah. 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 Have, hypotheses, a hypothesis. Exactly. Have a hypothesis, but 
test and learn and go from there. You can't just go in blind, but yeah. That makes sense. And uh, so my understanding is that like companies typically like raise money in uh-huh. um, like series or like rounds. So like sure, yeah. for um, like an initial investment. Oh yeah. Is, is there even a typical like size of a check that yeah. a company like you're writing companies as an investor? Yeah, there's a lot of data around this, and we could talk a lot about if you want kind of the changing market dynamics and how it's different now than it was ten years ago. From our perspective in Oregon, though, typically what we'll see is a company raising from friends and family maybe $500,000 or so to get an idea off the ground to really answer the question of, okay, is there a need in this market for the product that I want to build? So like that product market fit question. And so that 500K might come from friends and family, you know, colleagues they've worked with. Um, other people in their network and other people in the industry that have a have really want to see them succeed. And typically those folks are investing because they know the entrepreneur, they know she's a rock star, and they know that whatever she builds is going to take off. Um, when we invest, we're usually kind of the first the first time you raise money from somebody you don't know, that's kind of when we come in where we're we're usually the first institutional check-in, so the first venture fund that's in a company. And we invest around two to three million dollars. We'll write a check size of one to two million, but the round size is usually about two to three. And that is really to help with um, let's help you start selling one product and sell one to a hundred products. So it's figuring out not only, like I said, what the product should look like in the market, but how do you go about learning how to scale that? So um, maybe after, and that's about a seed stage, you know, the nomenclature's changing, but we'll call that a seed round still. Um, Series A's, which we used to call what we do Series A's, and now Series A's look more like a five to $10 million round. And if you know that you invest $1 into the business, you'll get $5 in return in revenue. So it's a really a lot, driven a lot more by the metrics in your business. Those are different for different companies, but I'd be happy to talk more about those. And it's a lot more um, about the scaling at stage. So that's all changed a little bit in the last 10 years, but um, that's kind of the path we see for a lot of companies. Sure. So it seems like the Series A becomes um, a little bit more dependent on like the valuation of the company. Mm-hmm. Like you're like in the angel stage, you're kind of saying like, this is viable. This could be like yeah. really good. Like, th- th- like there's potential. Yeah. And then in the Series A, it's like, well, this is like the amount of potential that we see. So like, like <laughs> you're dialing in a little bit more. Is that yeah. fair? So I like to think of it at the kind of angel friends and family checks. It's all about the team. At our stage, kind of this seed stage, a couple million dollars, it's all about the team and it's all about the market. And then when you get to the Series A or the five to $15 million round, it's all about the team, it's all about the market, and it's all about traction. So you do need to have some of those metrics um, in place for them to really understand the value of your business. Right, that makes sense. Um, so what do you look for? Uh, like what makes a great team that uh, you think will do well? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, we love and we are kind of thinking about how we can develop a little more rigor around how we analyze the quote unquote team ability, as we call it, of a, of a startup team. And 
I think what we've a few things that we've learned is that um, team really comes first because a the practical reasons of you know have you done it before are what you're built is the product you're building a problem that you experienced. Do you have the industry expertise in the industry network to be able to help get your foot in the door in some of these initial conversations? So that's kind of the really practical side of the team that we look at. Some of the more intangibles that we think about, though, are, you know, does this entrepreneur have a learning mindset? Are they strong leaders and they can communicate the vision of their company really clearly to hire the best employees, to always make sure there's money in the bank and to really, um, you know, ensure the longevity of their business? Are they hiring people that are better than them in certain areas so that they understand what their superpower is, but also what their Achilles heel is? Right. It strikes me that you want a really a team of really lopsided people, right? <laughs> yeah, like, maybe. Uh, I think I, I was reading uh, like Phil Knight's book, like Shoe Dog. Oh yeah, he's talking That's about the best business book of the last year. Yeah, I, I loved it because uh, he was talking about like hiring the accountants and everything, and it's like yeah. these people are like very different from me. Uh-huh. Uh, personality-wise, appearance-wise, like pretty much everything. Yeah. Uh, the things that they like to do, but they are extremely good at accounting. And, like that's what we need right now. Yeah. So they have this like team of just like pretty weird people. He's probably like one of those like a weird person in himself uh, <laughs> for wanting to start this thing. It's yeah. Uh, like just a crazy ambition that like I think maybe there you're you have to be a little weird to succeed in this area. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. Um, but like that, that's an example that like, stood out to me from that book. Yeah, like, interesting. Yeah, I think there's different um, different examples. And, you know, every company is a little bit different. But you're right. In general, one of the reasons we see co-founders is because it's quite hard to be excellent at every single aspect of running a business, in addition to the fact that it can be very hard and lonely to be, a, you know, to be a startup entrepreneur. So having that companion is usually helpful um, but we do find in general that what makes a rock star entrepreneur doesn't necessarily make a rock star um, employee or director or manager in a large company. So oh, sometimes they of, do. Tons but of people I've talked to have said like I'm I'm a, a bad employee. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's actually quite perverse in some ways, but totally. Yeah, like um, it's just a different um, like personality set, I yeah. guess. Yeah. Yeah, you've got to, I think what they said about Steve Jobs is, and I think every entrepreneur has a little bit of this in them, is this reality distortion field, right? You have to be eternally optimistic because it's so risky to build a startup that, you know, that that those are the types of things I think that makes that make an entrepreneur different um, than than a lot of other, you know, really awesome people in tech or people in other industries, you know, that entrepreneur mindset is different. Yeah, I believe it. Um, so besides uh, screening companies and uh, like making actual investments, yeah. uh, what else does an angel investor spend time on? Yeah, most of our day. So I should clarify, there are five people full time on our management team, um, of which I'm one. And then we have 150 or so individual angel investors. So I can talk a little bit uh, about the kind of full-time job yeah, of working at a venture fund. That's more what I was fund. asking. Yeah. What does your, um, your team day to of day. five do? Yeah, yeah. so um, our team is structured a little bit differently than other venture funds. And how we think about it is we divide our work into functional areas of expertise rather than say, 
I'm the enterprise software partner and I do all the deals in enterprise software and um, that's the only thing I focus on. Uh, so my role is running research and analysis here at the fund. So that looks like really thinking about how we all become better early stage investors and really trying to increase our collective understanding about how and why we make the investments that we do. Um, practically, that looks everything like meeting with entrepreneurs at the earliest stage, digging into deep diligence dives with companies that we are thinking about investing in, working with our portfolio CEOs to help them if they're raising more capital or going through an M&A process, um, hosting learning opportunities like workshops and field trips to help us better get a sense of emerging technologies or business models or markets. Um, so those are kind of some of the buckets that I might spend my time on during the day. My four other colleagues, John runs kind of cultivating and connecting. So he works with all the companies at the earliest stage of their development, helps get them connected to our investor base, and really helps build companies that we might want to invest in. Um, Scott runs kind of quarterbacks our diligence process. So he knows all the companies we're really in diligence with um, that are, you know, close to getting to an investment. Um, Eric, our founder, runs all of our investor support and portfolio support. So works with our portfolio companies on M&A, raising more money, putting out fires that they need putting out. Um, and then Lynn runs marketing and operations. So she makes sure that um, the fund is up and running every day and that we are actively communicating with all of our key stakeholders, including our investors, portfolio CEOs in the community. So from the investor side, it's kind of a weird question. Mm -hmm. So if you're an investor looking to allocate some capital to like the angel space, yeah. what are some good questions you should ask a manager or partner of that fund? Oh, interesting. So like our investors, what do they look for in our fund is to... Yeah, like okay. what What should like I be asking you? Okay, good <laughs> if question. If I want to make an investment. Yeah, yeah. great question. So um, there are... The number one thing about a venture fund are the financial performance metrics. And we look at a number of different metrics that help us run our business. But the two most common metrics that indicate the financial performance of a venture capital fund. The first is distributions per invested capital. And that basically what that means is if I invest a dollar in the Oregon Angel Fund, when the fund closes in 10 years, how many dollars can I expect in return? And our metric, we want to make sure that we're making at least three times the money that somebody invests with us. So and I'd be happy to talk more about like venture math um, at some point if you want, but what well, what does that mean? Uh, so so uh, like so we're looking for th making three times the money for our portfolio company. When I say venture math, it's you know the distribution of, of a portfolio. Right. Yeah, what does the distribution of each individual company have to look like for right. the portfolio over time to make three right. X? What I've heard, uh, yeah. So I understand it's uh, yeah. kind, kind of crazy because it's like- <laughs> Yeah, it's a little- It's very You don't want to think about it too hard because it's like, oh, why would you ever do that? <laughs> well, I mean, no, it's uh, like, uh, like many small losers and a few big winners. Exactly. And the big winners pay for the losers. So. Yeah, exactly. So it's never really talked about in this way, but like insurance, you know, you're pooling risk a little bit. Right. So um, yeah, since our the distribution, the companies in our portfolio look a little different, um, 
But in general, it's like at least half will fail. So either go out of business or make less than the money you get, give you back less than the money you invested. And the other half are going to, you know, do well. And a couple of those are going to do really, really well and help. Yeah. Make the portfolio better or uh, make all the returns in the portfolio. Our distribution looks a little bit more like we've had very few companies outright fail. We've had a lot that have done, you know, in the 3x range. And then we've had a couple that have, you know, a couple that have done like outsized type returns. So that looks a little different than other funds because we just haven't seen kind of the billion dollar exits like you might in other in other markets here. Um, and then the second metric though, if so if you think about that's a little bit about the venture math. The first metric for the financial health of a portfolio is distribution per invested capital. That's what we think is most important. Um, but IRR, the internal rate of return, is basically that same metric, but also including time in the calculation. So if I invest with the stock market, you know, that might make me, um, you know, three, four or five percent a year, but a venture capital fund should be doing more like 20 to 25 percent. So, um, but your capital is locked up for like a lot longer. Is that the trade off? Yeah. So, good point. It's the trade off is it's high risk, high reward. So, one, yes, when you invest, our minimum investment amount is $25,000 a year. You invest that money with us and you don't. You can't get that money back. <laughs> yeah. Unless there's a distribution or a return and we write you a check for it. But it's totally Ill- like it's a very illiquid market, whereas the public markets are totally liquid. Right. Well, I mean, that makes sense. But like it, like if it's me um, and I don't know, like it's not, you know, it's not for like every person. But like, OK, so I'm 25. Uh-huh. Uh, like say I have some money in like a 401k. Yeah. And like, okay, like say that's like $50,000 or yeah. something, or I don't know, like say I'm 30, like yeah. I have that amount buying 30. And I can't really use that money anyway until uh-huh. I'm like 60 or yeah. 59 and a half or whatever. Yeah. So seems like a pretty good place yeah. to put like, <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. So a couple of things, just a couple of things on yeah. that. Yeah. So, like, why, like what's wrong with that way of thinking or like, yeah. yeah. Well, you're an entrepreneur, so you're naturally, risk doesn't scare you. Um, oh, what, I, I, I'm very <laughs> risk averse. Yeah. Like, yeah. So that I'm stingy so, with risk, I so, guess. Yeah. So a couple of things we think about is, so you have to be an accredited investor to invest in private securities. Um, oh, or so in private like a, companies. So you have like a million dollar net worth? Yeah, so, so it's okay. a million dollar net worth or an annual income of 200000 or 250000 for a couple for at least two years to invest in a startup and um, and or invest in a fund like ours who invests in startups. And so I think it's recommended that really like no more than 10% of your wealth should be put into startups. Though I know, I mean, there are stories of lore, like in Silicon Valley, where early entrepreneurs and early people who wanted to get into investing would like take out loans to invest in startups, just, oh. you know, like, because they wanted to get into the industry and stuff. And, oh, man. And, but our, so it's our like big- terrifying. Totally. Yeah. So our big thing is that- We're just like paying interest for like 10 years. Yeah, it totally, work. totally. It's a lot of money out before you get money yeah. back. But our big thing is that one of the reasons we try to keep the- threshold pretty low for an annual check size is um, we want like current and recent entrepreneurs who are top in their field are active in their industry to be our investors. And so we feel like, yes, why $25,000 a year is 
um, not a small amount. The hope is that that threshold is low enough so that right. those CEOs that are earlier in their career, like she can invest with us. Yes, we recommend investing with us um, for at least four years to get the distribution of 30 plus portfolio right. companies that are important in an early stage portfolio. Um, but we also, one of the reasons we have an annual fund that most, very few other venture funds do, um, is that it's kind of an optional capital call or it's like a SaaS business model where we have to earn your business every year. And so you can decide to write a check one year or not if you need to. So that flexibility has been really beneficial for us in being able to iterate and change as a fund and also to help attract kind of the top entrepreneurs as investors in our portfolio. In yeah. Our okay. Yeah. That, that's really interesting. It's set up so you can like tap that expertise mm-hmm. in other industries. Yeah. And we've, our pricing model is like exactly so, you know, it really targets the people that we want and the value that we bring. And so an example, a counter example would be most funds is you'd write a hundred thousand dollar check at least for four years. Um, and then and every year, that be, yeah, they deploy that every time they made an investment. But we're saying the opposite. We're saying, you know, it's optional for you, though it's recommended that you um, keep investing with us. So, and we have a really, you know, 90% of our investors come back every year. And um, the attrition's good. If, you know, a lot of people have been, been investing for a long time with us. But then we get fresh new blood and perspective. And right. having that diverse perspective of diverse backgrounds, diverse experiences, is the way that we make our, is the way that our fund is successful. It's our secret sauce. So that's really, really important to us to have those diverse backgrounds as from our investor base. Yeah, oh, it seems like a structural advantage, which is pretty cool. Yeah, totally. We like to think so. <laughs> yeah. it, it It's uh, it's complicated on the back end to make it simple on the front end, which is very common, I think. For, well, that's, that's most businesses. Yeah, exactly, right? Or like a Whopper burger or whatever. It's uh, like a very simple customer experience, but yeah. like, I don't know, you got to slaughter some cows like, <laughs> yeah. and like chili and like pack the meat up to America yeah, yeah, and like yeah. there's some, I don't know, got to source yeah. your cheese and everything. Convoluted, yeah. Okay, so another thing I was curious about, have you noticed uh, if there are common traits of successful entrepreneurs? Ooh, um, there is a growing body of research around like, can you find correlations to success in venture investing? And a one main thing that people look at is, okay, well, what are the traits of a successful team? And there's some great research you can read, though, frankly, I think a lot more work can and should be done in terms of what makes a successful entrepreneur. Um, there's a Harvard Business Review study review that um, I would recommend reading. It talks about kind of the traits of successful entrepreneurs, but a couple things that we think about um, is, and I touched on a few of them, but it's the three main qualities of a good CEO and a successful entrepreneur are communicating the vision of a company, making sure that you can hire and retain the best employees, and also making sure that you always have money in the bank, whether that's through investment or through revenue. Um, And so we think for being a young startup and a young entrepreneur, the ability to be flexible is crucial. The ability to have and communicate a vision and a plan right up until the point that you need to change the plan is really important because analyzing and looking at data and thinking about what your customers are telling you, um, that's all really important. But 
often you need to also understand what your customer wants and needs two years before they do. So um, being comfortable. Do you account for like development time? Well, no, just because just because your customer can tell you what they think they need, but you need to build them what they actually need. And sometimes you're working with limited data or kind of incorrect data because we don't always all know what we need. Um, and so how do you manage all of those different um, pieces of data coming in and then how do you understand like the vision of what you want to build how do those you can't those can't be incongruous and often they are so that flexibility and learning mindset really comes into play there um, we this might be our bias as investors from Oregon but we've found that like humility and transparency are also really key elements of of being a really strong leader. I was so, going to ask because like mm-hmm. uh, like the real world is messy and like mm-hmm. on paper like these are all things that like make a lot of sense. So yeah. So humility and transparency are okay. So what makes those like yeah. great? Um, like indicators that all yeah. the other things will work out. Yeah. So. St- a startup is really, really hard and it's really hard to do it. And like the success rate is just ridiculously low. Um, and so there are always going to be setbacks in a business and it is very easy to turn inward and become closed off when there are setbacks in any business. But often what needs to be done is problems and setbacks need to be communicated transparently so that you can get help. You know, you have one of the main reasons to have a venture fund or an angel investor with expertise is because they've been there before. They've done it. They can help you think through issues and help you get out of your own head a little bit. Um, And so we think that you can't get help with your problems unless you're honest about what the problem is and why it happened. So again, it goes back to the learning mindset of, you know, do you have what it takes to get through those setbacks in the business and be honest with yourself to be able to learn from those failures and also to seek the help that you might need to to get through those um you know those inevitable setbacks in a business um and so there's a few things that we have looked to as leading indicators of whether or not a CEO or a founder is you know humble and transparent in a a few of those things are, you know, as you're interacting with the CEO and, you know, is their whole executive team in the room and are, is the CEO, is she willing to let the person with the most expertise kind of take the reins on the conversation? Are they willing to give up, kind of cede that control over to somebody else? Um, to be the, to, uh, not be the smartest person in the room. Yeah, do they? Yeah, they're the smartest person in the room. Do they um, have they hired people that are better than them at their core area? Um, that's kind of the it humility knocks out, piece. Like a number of it, like a number of problems, right? Like, yeah, yeah. I mean, there's still going to be those problems, but and you know. Th- there's still going to be those problems, but we think this sets companies and entrepreneurs up for success when those inevitable problems come. A couple other things that we think about, and again, this is different. Other investors would tell you other things and other companies would tell you other things, but we find that if an entrepreneur says words like I really frequently, as opposed to words like we really frequently, that can be an indication of um, them not 
being a team player and them feeling right. like they're doing everything. A co-founder in a business is a right. great way to think about that as well. Um, symptoms of so many other issues. Yeah, and yeah. and it's interesting because there are companies like Intel that really teach to use I, so it's very clear who's done what, and then it's transparent, accountability, accountability and that's great, um, and that's important. As you start to listen for it, though, as um, an investor, it begins to at least, if not be a red flag, say, okay, this is something we need to investigate a little bit more um, and look at some of the other traits of the CEO to um, to make us feel good about their transparency and honesty. And, um, and that's one of the reasons why we like to spend a lot of time with companies before we kind of go into a diligence four week sprint where it's like, we want to invest in your business. Why shouldn't we? And sometimes it just takes times and long relationships and building that trust and communication and that culture of transparency with an entrepreneur. Yeah. So I'm, I'm curious because it's something, something I've heard is uh, problematic if you're like raising outside capital uh -huh. is you can't, or a lot of people feel like they can't be totally honest about the problems that they're dealing with. Yeah. Because, well, like, if you have the problem, but, like, you have enough money to solve the problem, <laughs> yeah. then you're good. But if you have the problem and you need more money to solve the problem, yeah. it's like, and, like, you have serious doubts about whether that, that can be done uh -huh. currently without, like, yeah. it's kind of a... Uh, chicken and the egg kind of thing <laughs> yeah. or catch 22. Yeah. Well, what we found is that more money doesn't often solve right. a problem. Um, and so we, I mean, we look for that in a business. And I think one of the reasons why, you know, people have been touting failure as this really great thing is because what I would rather see in a business is what are the problems that you have right now and what are your hypotheses about how you're going to solve that problem? Um, and very often, there is no business that we invest in that doesn't have problems that they need to solve. Um, and often, yeah, they're raising money because they need to figure out how to solve that problem. It's usually, how do I sell this product to a customer? So I don't, so it's more about what is your hypothesis about how you're going to solve the problem? What is your plan to go about testing whether or not you're going to understand, like testing the ways you can solve that problem. And then in six months, when those, you know, things aren't working that you've identified, how do you do the process again and figure out, okay, like we've solved this problem, here's the next one, or here's the problem that's come because of the way we solved the last problem. Like it's, it's, I don't care what the problem is. I want to, I'm interested in how are you solving it? And so this is why we ask questions like, well, what, what, um, what challenges have you faced as a business now up until this point? How have you overcome those? What do you anticipate moving forward? You'll need to watch out for. And even us as investors, when we think about the risk reward, we look at and write down, okay, these are the big opportunities for this company to succeed. If they fail, these are what we've identified as the key issues that will be why they fail. And we are taking that risk up front and we believe that the risk reward opportunity is there, but we are honest with ourselves about what those risks and what those problems are gonna be going into an investment. So it seems like I don't know. Like, it still seems kind of problematic to me, but hmm. like, 
I mean, in a general sense, but it also seems just, like you're making yeah. an effort as an investor yeah. to like be empathetic yeah. and be the kind of person that they are comfortable coming to because yeah. that produces success yeah. more often. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so, I mean, I think transparency is really key. So what happens in a transaction is... Like confidence is also very key. Yeah, like. yeah, totally. And I, every, every CEO has that balance uh, of... You know, they, they can spin a good story. And, you know, the reality is that you make an investment. We typically take a board seat. And usually uh, what happens in the first board meeting is it's like, oh, shit. That's what the first board meeting is called. The oh, shit board meeting. Sorry if I can't swear on this podcast. You can bleep me out. Um, because it's like, oh, like these are all the problems in the business we didn't see before we invested. And I think you do. There is a leap of faith that happens with any company you invest in. And you hope that you build a, you know, relationship that's built on trust and communication with the entrepreneur that you're investing in so that as those inevitable problems arise and as the ones you didn't see were there come up that, um, you know, there that you can work through those. And the reality is that there are no knowns and there are known unknowns and then there are just unknown unknowns. And we try to identify as much as the stuff that we can up front. Um, you can never, I mean, you can never do all of it. And that's why, you know, it's a, it's really about that relationship between the investor and the entrepreneur. And it goes both ways. You want an investor that is communicative and transparent with you, just like you want a CEO that is communicative and, and transparent right back. Have you ever uh, killed a good investment by overanalyzing it? <laughs> Interesting. I, I only, I mean, I've done that with like public market stuff. Yeah. Um, but what's yeah. your perspective? Um, I would say one of the big risks with our model in particular, this collaborative investment model, is that we might not take big enough risks we might not lose as much, but we might be regressing toward the mean because we make these, you know, yes, small group decisions with experts and then an investment committee approves those decisions, um, but it's on a majority basis. So one thing we think about is, are we taking enough risk and or do or has group think, say, made us take too risky of a decision or not risky enough of a decision um yeah like there's that risk of uh creating your own echo chamber exactly kind of. exactly and we have to we really try to avoid that and one thing we try to do is make sure that in every conversation we don't kind of explicitly say it but is somebody being the devil's advocate whether you're taking enough risk or whether you're not taking enough risk sometimes our brains like as you see something more and more, your brain just has more of an affinity toward it. And so it's going to like it more, even if it shouldn't. It's like confirmation so bias. Kind yeah, of. exactly. Yeah. Thank you. So um, so the more and more you look at a company, you might be predisposed just to like it more because you've been working with it for a long time. So there are all these risks in just our model and in investing in general. And yeah, I think there's a couple of, com there are definitely a couple of companies here in Oregon that we've missed because we either weren't willing to take enough risk or we didn't move fast enough because we were taking too long to make a decision um, or for a variety of other reasons. We would love to be able to analyze the data of companies we invested in versus companies we didn't invest in and see, um, you know, what did we miss about the companies that were really successful and 
as the Portland startup ecosystem is growing and the Oregon startup ecosystem is growing, um, we'll start to be able to do that more and more. Unfortunately, it's just it's such slow feedback loops in venture because it off for the best companies to succeed, it takes at least, you know, it takes seven years, five to seven years. And the ones that fail fail really quickly. Yeah. Um, now though that we've been doing this long enough, there's enough of a healthy, robust ecosystem here where there are other investors and other companies getting funded and we haven't invested in them. We are starting to be able to see some of this data that we can kind of analyze. But um but yeah, the reality is is you're always going to miss them. That's why investors have their list on their website of all the companies we've missed, you know, that have done really well. So interesting. Yeah. Do you have any favorite stories of particularly particularly resourceful entrepreneurs? Ooh, particularly resourceful entrepreneurs. Um Huh. Yeah, I mean, we have a lot of them. And actually, Eric Rosenfeld would be the one to ask about this because he uh, founded the business 10 years ago and was doing venture investing long before that. I would say, in general, Portland is a much scrappier ecosystem than other areas, I think because it is harder to raise money here. And so, you know, I can think of, um, I'll talk about one business in particular, but they... I mean, had a vision five years ago and they were able to raise money to execute on the vision. And thankfully they had the experience and the expertise in the industry they were in, but they raised money and then they went a long time without being able to raise more money. And so I think most companies here are scrappy in the sense that they have to get to revenue and profitability faster than other companies do in, say, the Bay Area or Seattle. Um, and so we see a lot of companies that are spun out of um, like services companies. So they see a problem, but they're able to have some revenue as they're building a product. Sometimes that's a big no-no for other investors, but for us, actually, we've seen some really successful companies like Opal Labs, Hub Technologies, PolySync would fit in there. Um, and they had some sort of component that helped them learn and figure out the business. And then once they were ready, they could spin out the product and kind of have it as a standalone company. Um, so on an aggregate basis, that's kind of a yeah. one of the scrappiest things we've seen, but I'd have to think a little it's bit more about like a specific. Specific one? Yeah. yeah. Well, let's circle back to it in like yeah. a couple minutes. Um, so what, so just my general last few yeah. questions I like to generally ask everyone. Um, what advice would you give to someone looking at starting their own business? Ooh. Um, what is the problem that you really want to solve? And I think the reason to think about it in that way is because the problem is what we've seen gets entrepreneurs up in the morning and gets them to come back to what they're building. And whatever you're building is really going to change over time. And so it's way more important to be wed to the problem you're solving rather than the product you're building, because in no company we've invested in has the product they've built looked exactly the same years later. So as you root around like, what is the problem that I'm passionate and not only passionate, but kind of obsessive about solving that will help me get up in the morning, help me get through kind of those hard times and ultimately help me build the right solution, whatever that solution looks like for my customer base. Yeah, 
and then just advice. yeah yeah and then maybe just tangentially like what type of company do you want to build you know is it a um do you want to have partners in the business do you want to have investors in the business do you think it's going to be a rocket ship or do you think it's going to be um a really healthy successful profitable business that grows a healthy percent every year um so yeah i think you know the why behind why you're starting a business can help answer some of those questions yeah makes a lot of sense uh and then do you have any um like books or other resources you'd recommend um yeah it could be um like specific to your field like uh-huh. if you want to learn more about angel investing check this yeah. out or um just any book that you've really enjoyed in yeah. like the last few yeah, years yeah that's a great question um so i love this question you might have noticed when you walked into our office that we have a whole bookshelf yeah uh, in the front office and that's because i think one of the parts of our culture is learning here right. at the fund well, and like so Powell's is like four blocks yeah. down <laughs> yeah exactly we can see pals from this room right now yeah. um and so actually when i started um i was kind of the only thing that eric has ever told me to do was um, you know, these are recommended reading before you start at the Oregon Angel Fund. And many of those books that were recommended are books that have stuck with me today and I think have really helped shaped um, the culture of how we think and invest. And so we always recommend to people just kind of three what you need to know before either working with us or angel investing or working with a startup um, is, you know, we like thinking thinking fast and slow we feel like is a must read book for an investor because it does think about all of those ways in which we make decisions that we don't know about right. weird really weird thought processes really weird yeah. thought processes um like, yeah. yeah uh start with why is one that's really important to us um it's thinks you know it's why am i making the decision that i'm doing and anchoring on that can really help dictate the way um companies move the way we make decisions um and then we like personally at the fund and also personally it's one of my favorite books is give and take and that's the idea of you know we in a startup community you give a lot you know and i think we think about yes we're investing for money and yes we're investing for um, success and returns but like we're investing to build the startup community in oregon and that takes a lot of helping partners and helping companies and you know if we want to create this virtuous cycle of wealth in oregon it's doing a lot of stuff that doesn't seem immediately apparent to how it's gonna impact us but that culture of giving is one that we find um, really important here. I'd say if you just want to learn about like startups and investing in general, Brad Feld, his series of books on um, startup investing are great. Um, he also has a blog that's really well regarded, um, Zero to One by Peter Thiel Peter Thiel, yeah. and um, Eric Reese's book on the lean startup is, of course, one that, you know, one, those are a few just like startup 101 have to read. Yeah, great. Uh, that's a, a, lot, a lot. Of, <laughs> a lot of reading. We, really we, do, it's, we, it's really we good. read a lot here. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, that's, um, I think that's a good trait to look for in an investor. Yeah. Um, that they're curious and always yeah. looking to learn. Yeah. Um, has this sparked any thoughts about? Oh, yeah. Um, okay, so I'll say one that's super top of mind for examples, me. We yeah. see a lot of really scrappy entrepreneurs all the time. Um, but one of my favorite, most scrappiest entrepreneurs is Emma McElroy at Wild Fang. Wild Fang, Wild okay. Fang is a 
um, women's uh, lifestyle brand, and they are really pioneering and um, cultivating this tribe of women and um, individuals who identify as maybe um, binary or asexual or non-sexual. And the idea is that, you know, they're really wide, riding these waves of female empowerment, of gender neutrality, and they have found some super innovative ways to talk to their customer and reach their customer. So a couple of those are now is a really interesting time to be kind of pioneering the voice of women, and they have really found ways to talk to their customer in a way that's authentic and stick up for them without, but they're, they're doing it because they so and like there's it's who they are is who their customer is. And so, um, for instance, with Roe v. Wade um, and the 45th anniversary, I believe, of Roe v. Wade, they've launched an Indiegogo campaign hosted by their company. All of the proceeds for the Indiegogo campaign are going to go back to um, help the last abortion clinics in states that only have one left. So they've raised close to $100,000 in a couple of days on Indiegogo for that. They've also paid for billboards that say, we're not going back. And it says very like gently on the bottom, you know, Wild Fang, their brand. And they've paid for them in Times Square in New York. They've paid for them here in Portland. They've paid for them in um, these states that only have a couple of abortion clinic, one abortion clinic left. And, you know, their, their thought is that there might not be an immediate impact to maybe our bottom line, but like, this is the way our customer wants us to talk to them. And this is the way that we want our brand to look and think and feel. And frankly, like Emma's not doing, you know, Emma's doing it because she wants to buy, drive brand awareness. Sure. But like she's doing it because that's what her customer it's and her girl authentic. needs and wants. Yeah. And so those are some of the ways that they've been super scrappy and authentic about these like you know, that wouldn't work for any other, that wouldn't work for an enterprise software company, right? But it works really well for their business. And they're some of the best I've seen about thinking about how they can talk to their customers and really represent their customers. So yeah, it's yeah, that's a like a great story. Yeah, like, yeah, uh, yeah. The Indiegogo campaign's going on right now. So it's three days in and if anyone, oh, okay. if you want to contribute, so. Yeah. Uh, how long is that going? Um, um, well, they're three days in and the campaigns are about 30 days long. 30 so days. they have, okay. Lots more days so to help raise awareness. I'll try and get like a quick turnaround on this episode. So. <laughs> <laughs> you can get that out. Yeah, thank you. I'm sure Emma would appreciate that. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, she's someone that I think three separate people have recommended yeah, sure. that I talk to her. <laughs> she will be your best interview, 100%. Yeah. Well, that's yeah. really cool. Yeah. Um, yeah. Thanks so much for your time. Totally. I, I appreciate you. Um, sharing a little bit of your morning with me. So. Yeah, I know. Yeah, I had just a blast learning okay, about cool. all this stuff. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> That's good. Yeah, if you can't tell, we all love to talk about it. We really yeah. love to do what we do. Yeah, so. you're very enthusiastic. It's oh, awesome. Yeah, we'll probably do No, it's like the best treat in a guest. That's all, like the number one <laughs> uh, thing I look for. Oh, uh, thanks. You can find links to all of Julianne's book recommendations in the show notes, as well as a link to Oregon Angel Fund's website. Also, she mentioned Wild Fang's Indiegogo campaign towards the end, so I included a link to that as well if you want to donate to that. Ratings and reviews. I want them. This week, Deep Sea Dylan says, This show takes you from restaurant owners to falconers on a journey to discover what makes a successful entrepreneur. I'm always amazed at how much I learn about both the subjects and starting a business. Thanks, Deep Sea Dylan. And the rest of you, take note. I want to get this show higher in the rankings so that more people can discover why they should try. 
Good or bad, I don't care. Music for this podcast is by Cambrian Explosion, who once traveled back in time to hunt the mighty Tyrannosaurus Rex, but accidentally stepped on a butterfly, thus creating a ripple effect that led to the crazy world we now inhabit. But you gotta appreciate that the world is pretty good. So thanks, Cambrian Explosion. I'm sure that was a plan all along. You can find their music stomping its way across the internet on Apple iTunes, Spotify, and cepdx.bandcamp.com, as well as the Cambrian Explosion Facebook page where they have notices about upcoming concerts and events that they'll be playing at, so you can hear them live, especially if you're in the Portland area. Thanks for listening.